Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. We've got a great show for you today. Thomas Jefferson was arguably the most brilliant and inspiring political writer in American history, but the ethical realities of his personal life and political career did not live up to his soaring rhetoric. Indeed, three tensions define Jefferson's moral life, democracy versus slavery, Republican virtue versus dissolute consumption, and veneration for Jesus versus skepticism about Christianity. In his revelatory new book, Thomas S. Kidd tells the story of Jefferson's ethical life through the lens of these tensions, including an unapologetic focus on the issue where Jefferson's idealistic philosophy and lived reality clashed most obviously, his sexual relationship with his enslaved woman, Sally Hemings. In doing so, Kidd offers a unique perspective on one of American history's most studied figures. Dr. Thomas Kidd is research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, or at least he will be very, very soon, currently the Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University, and he's here to talk about his new book from Yale University Press, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Dr. Kidd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, we just talked um, offline, this this transition, you're, you're actually moving up to Kansas City uh, next week from this recording, is that right? That's right. Yeah, we can't wait to get up there. And, uh, you know, I've been at Baylor for 20 years, so it's a huge change for me. But we're just so excited about what's going on in Midwestern and ready to jump in. Yeah, we're we're excited to have you. I think when this episode comes out, it will be mid-July. So it'll still be another couple months for the uh, new semester starts. But looking forward to having you around campus, brother. I, okay, so I have to ask... Uh, I mean, you are an American historian. You you have written biographies on Benjamin Franklin and 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 other um, historical works. Why Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of bounce back and forth in my writing between um, the American founding period and then uh, the Great Awakening, which happened about uh, thirty years before the American Revolution. And um, <laughs> I think the the through line of most of it is just what difference that faith made in the uh, founding of America. And obviously that is not only of a historical interest, but it has a lot of current political weight to it. And there are a lot of bad answers to that, to that question on both the left and the right. And so I feel like as a, you know, an academic historian, uh, but also a believer, I can, you know, offer maybe a little more nuanced perspective a complicated perspective than what you get in the polemical answers uh, on the left and right. Of course, the secular left will often assert that, you know, faith had almost nothing to do with the American Revolution. It was a purely kind of secular enlightenment affair. Um, and then on the right, you get attempts by sort of Christian America partisans to say, well, you know, all the founding fathers were born again believers, or almost <laughs> all of them were, and 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 I mean that people have tried that even with Jefferson, in spite of the fact that from early in his career uh, he he denied the Trinity, he he didn't believe in the resurrection, he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ, which seemed to be pretty important doctrines to the Christian <laughs> right. faith. Right, and and so you know you you get the feeling sometimes what what's sort of driving the bus here is is it America part or is it 
historic Christianity. And so when you look at who Jefferson actually was, this is what good history does for you. You realize that he's he's different from you, you know what you would expect from the menu of of you know secular left versus Christian America right. He's deeply informed by his Christian upbringing and his deep familiarity with the Bible and all that, but that doesn't mean that he's some kind of traditional Christian. The subtitle, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh, I think speaks to these tensions that you're working through, the nuance that you just referenced. What are some of those tensions? What does spirit and flesh mean, a biography of spirit and flesh mean? Yeah. Well, of course, you know, the the idea of the tension between the spirit and flesh is a biblical theme. And, and Jefferson even occasionally had people say this about him, that, you know, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. Um, and, and I think when people said that about him, it was getting at the idea that there was an inconsistency between his ideas and, and then the way that he lived, maybe some of his uh, political policies too. But I'm, I'm particularly interested in how his, I think, great and powerful ideas politically, ideologically played out in his personal life. And so probably the most famous one is how could he say that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights and then own hundreds of people as slaves. And and as you said, we're virtually certain now that he carried on a long-term sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, his uh, enslaved woman, and and had a number of children by her. Um, How could he live that way? I mean, I, I think that that maybe is the the, the most pressing question about Jefferson. But when you look, there there are deeper questions, too. Um, for instance, he believes in this small-R Republican ideology that, uh, you know, presses the idea of personal integrity and independence and, and frugal living so that you're not—you don't, you don't have to live uh, under the thumb of the man, as we would say in American culture today— but he was a total disaster uh, financially. He he constantly overspent. Part of it, he, he wasn't a good uh, farming manager. He he just overspent constantly. Some of his overspending was on books, which is a, a vice I approve of. But <laughs> but, uh, right. uh, but a lot of it was on wine. He just spent a phenomenal amount of, of money over long decades uh, on alcohol. Most of it imported from Europe. He built two different versions of Monticello, uh, and when he got done with the second one, he he started on a, another mansion, lesser-known mansion at Poplar Forest near Lynchburg, Virginia. I mean, I mean it, it's just completely out of control, the way that he actually lived. And, and then the final one is this tension about Christianity that we've already discussed, that he knows the Bible really, really well. As an adult, he reads the Greek New Testament. Uh, regularly. He reads the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And a casual observer might look at that and say, oh, well, he's, he must be a Christian because there's no secular people today, who, you know, except for a few religion professors who, who <laughs> do that sort of thing. And certainly not just a layperson for personal edification. But as I said, he denies pretty much all the basic doctrines of Christianity, uh, and and yet he's obsessed with the Bible. So he's a mess. I mean, and and you really have to hang in there with who he is in his time and place to understand where he's coming from. In some ways, what you're just describing 
strikes me as so common with even evangelical figures from American history or just history in general, you know, what we try to do or attempt to do to reconcile the truths, the, you know, the great, you know, ministerial work, you know, f- you know, figures like Edwards and Whitfield and, and so on with what we know about their, you know, enslavement of Africans and other things as well. Today, we, we wrestle with that. We think, gosh, do we need to throw everything out? But now we have a figure kind of on the other side, it would seem. You know, Jefferson does not appear to be a, a born-again Christian, so to speak. And so now we're trying to sort of say, well, gosh, all of his, you know, political theory and, and his rhetoric and his, you know, helping kind of establish the foundations of uh, American democracy and so forth. Why do we struggle with that, <laughs> with that re- reconciliation and and how should we do it? I mean, we can key in on Jefferson in particular, but you know, broadening that out a little bit, how should we think about our our vaunted figures from from church history and American history without throwing everything away? Yeah, that's I think another big goal that I have for the book is is how do we think about people who did things that were not just oversights or right. you, you know, especially in Jefferson's case, so you could compare. Whitfield and the, the fact that Whitfield is, he's really a pro-slavery activist in a way that Edwards is a more casual sort of receiver of enslaving a few people, which is wrong anyway. But, but I mean, yeah. Whitfield is really an activist, right? And, and so, yeah, I mean, he, he's key to getting slavery legalized in, in Georgia and basically threatens to pull out his his ministry out of Georgia if if they won't legalize slavery. So, and with Jefferson, I mean, of course, slave owning is is utterly common among the founding fathers, and not not just the Southern founders. I mean, many people don't remember that Ben Franklin owned slaves for most of his life. But with Jefferson, it does go further. I mean, from early in his career, he says he knows that slavery is immoral. In in both Christian and kind of Enlightenment type of categories, but he he really doesn't do anything about it. Uh, I mean, per, certainly personally, um, and, and there are some notable political achievements. Most obviously, he signs the ban on the international slave trade in in uh, in eighteen oh eight in America. And that, and that I mean, that's a big deal. Although the people like Jefferson didn't need to be importing more slaves by that point because the Virginia slave masters had more slaves than they knew what to do with. It's not at all to downplay the seriousness of what people like Jefferson or in a different context, Whitfield did. But I I think we also have to be humble about the way that we look at these people, because where I draw the line about cancel culture and all this, and, you know, we've gone through some years of tearing down statues and, and renaming schools and all that. And to me, it's hard to justify that if you bring a sort of Christian humility into your assessment of the past. And, and this is how it works, is, is you say Jefferson did evil things. Uh, I mean, we can just state it baldly. He did evil things with regard to slavery and his coercive relationship with Sally Hemings. But do we know for sure that we would have done better if we were in his position? And I think a Christian view of it would say, no, I, I mean— but for the grace of God, there go I. And so we we really shouldn't be using the past to sort of trumpet our own virtue and morality. Look how much better I am than these people in the past, but especially on Twitter. I mean, 
that seems to be a lot of the use of the past is you know saying that I'm virtuous enough to denounce people in the past for for their sins, where I, I really think a, a more mature way of of looking at the past is being humbled uh, and say you know you look at somebody like Whitfield I mean he's the most powerful evangelist in the English speaking world of his time. And yet he's doing deeply immoral things with regard to spreading slavery or Jefferson in a more natural sense is, what can I say? I mean, he's he's titanically brilliant. He articulates the most powerful view of human equality that the world has ever seen. All men are created equal. And yet he's doing these appalling things personally. And we should learn from that. You know, if we decide we want to rename a school or whatever, okay. I mean, that, <laughs> if it's deliberative and consensus building and all that, then then that's great. But iconoclasm and all this, I think we need less of that in American culture. We can't say, as some people do, these are blind spots, right? Maybe we could say that about some, I suppose. But what you just laid out is he knows and has admitted that these things are immoral. And yet he, so that's the tension we're looking at is not like, how can somebody so great not know that what he's doing is wrong? He knew that what he was doing was wrong, was immoral, and and in one sense worked against it, I guess, in his public life and then privately. That's the tension, and I think that's the requires more spiritual insight than I think you know those outside the faith probably are are able. Yeah. They can see the hypocrisy. They probably cannot answer the complexity of the human heart in the way that you know believers can. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, among other things, shows you how captive we can be to our culture, that especially if other people are doing it, you can easily justify it. And what we believe and what we do is often so powerfully shaped just by the people we're around. It's a sociological issue, and it's even stranger with Jefferson in the sense that Sally Hemings was Jefferson's wife, his wife Martha died in the early 1780s, but Sally Hemings was Martha's half-sister. They had the same father, um, white father. You know, this is a sort of dark secret in, you know, early American antebellum slave culture that there were a number of masters who were carrying on sexual relationships with, with slaves, but very few people ever talked about it. But there are even white plantation mistresses who in their diaries would talk about, you know, I know what's going on. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, it's it's part of the horror of what American slavery actually was, is is that there's not just the, you know, the physical brutality, but there's sexual exploitation that's, you know, right at the center of it. It's, it is not a pretty picture. And Jefferson denounced interracial sex. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. it, it's it's just so deeply problematic. Yeah, that that in this case to call it uh, a, a blind spot, um, you, you know, with with somebody like Edwards, the problem with calling it a blind spot is it sounds like you're saying there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but it, it's easier to say somebody like Edwards who buys and and, and enslaves a number, you know, several uh, African African American people in his household, but. Um, Jefferson and Whitfield take it a good bit farther, and and they stick out, I think, in in the context of their culture as being pretty pretty extreme figures on the issue of slavery. You know, a, a few years ago, probably you know several years ago, I, I remember there was an effort being made to kind of rehabilitate 
Jefferson's image among evangelicals, I think kind of, um, you know, pendulum swing against sort of the, um, you know, secular rewriting of history, more towards the, you know, faith-driven rewriting of history. And the the claim is, of course, that all the stuff that we know or, or has been said about Jefferson over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, um, you know, isn't true, that he, you know, really is a Christian and, and all these sorts of things. I feel like we're we're on this swing kind of back and forth. What do evangelicals get wrong about Jefferson? Help us set the record straight. How should we think about him, and, and what is his position in terms of uh, the Christian faith? Well, certain you know evangelical writers have, have denied pretty much everything I've, I've said about <laughs> right uh, right uh, about Jefferson, um, including the the Sally Hemings relationship. To be totally fair, I mean there there are a very small number of of, of sort of academic dissenters on the Sally Hemings question. But in the late nineties, uh, there, there was a famous DNA study that, that proved that a Jefferson, uh, male was the father of, uh, at least one of Sally Hemings children. Oh. And that, you know, that basically brought it down to two Jefferson, uh, men, either, or either Thomas Jefferson or his brother. And, uh, one of those two people, spent an enormous amount of time over many decades uh, alone with Sally Hemings <laughs> and that's Thomas Jefferson. So, I mean, uh, you know, and he had direct access to where she slept in, in at Monticello and so forth. And, and the, you know, the birth dates, you know, line up and all, all this, I mean, would it stand up in a court of law, like in a paternity suit? I, that I'm not sure. I mean, but, there is extremely strong circumstantial evidence that he was he was the father, and and people talked about it um, at the time. I mean, it, this is not like you know early twenty first century historians have made this up. I mean, people it was publicly reported in the early eighteen hundreds. I, I mean, in in newspapers. So I mean, <clears throat> you know, this is not like revisionism. And Sally Hemings, at least one of her children, said. Thomas Jefferson was my father. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, you know, there there is heavy evidence in in favor of that. But I think the more uh, pressing issue, um, even some evangelicals today who would concede the Sally Hemings issue, uh, I think have have still tried to uh, redeem Jefferson's religious views in the name of of saying that the founding fathers were Christians or at least heavily sympathetic to traditional Christianity. And um, the the way that this works in, in some in a couple of notable cases is that people have, have talked about the Jefferson Bible, uh, which was Jefferson's compilation of uh, a, a distillation of ethical teachings of Jesus from the Gospels. And they've said, well, you know, this this was effectively a, a kind of evangelistic track. You know, it was it was short because it was you know meant to be something that was simple to read, and the 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 reason that they say that is because the first version there were two versions of the Jefferson uh, Bible, the the first one we've lost the text of, but for some reason we still have the cover page of it, his handwritten cover page, hmm. and it said that it was uh, for the use of the Indians. Okay. 
Um, and, 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 and scholars have debated whether he literally meant Native Americans or he, whether he was using code language for his political enemies. But in any case, um, uh, people have latched onto that and said, well, this, see, this is an evangelistic tract or, or at least teaching Christianity to Native Americans. Well, there, you know, there's no evidence that he actually used it that way. I mean, he hardly let anyone see this thing. Uh, the, the Jefferson Bible. And the Jefferson Bible is, you know, is almost entirely naturalistic um, and, and has the, the miracles, for the most part, in the Gospels literally cut out with scissors. Um, <laughs> and, and it ends with uh, the verse, they, you know, they rolled a large stone in front of the sepulcher and they went away. That's how it ends. That's how, the, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you look at a copy of the Jefferson Bible, uh, the Smithsonian has produced a wonderful facsimile copy of the actual, you know, pasting of, the, of the, the passages in. That's the last verse of Jefferson's Bible, is a, a dead Jesus in, in, in an occupied tomb. Well, I don't, I don't know any Christian who would do a shortened version <laughs> of the Gospels who would leave out the resurrection. Yeah. This seems problematic to me, and so that's what I always tell people: is you know, I'm sorry, but but any kind of distillation of the gospel that doesn't include the resurrection is is not Christian. But yeah, so it sounds like it, he's excising all the supernaturality out of, it. as you said, it's a naturalistic approach. Yeah, I mean, if you could imagine, it's almost that. I mean, if you could imagine though doing a version like this of the Gospels. I mean, it's kind of hard to be um, totally consistent with this sort of no miracles rule. So he ends up leaving some things in um, that that are more supernatural. I mean, like re- a few references to angels, references to hell, represents, references to the end times and things like that, but they tend to come in the middle of parables or, or Jesus' explanation of parables. And Jefferson really liked the parables, hmm. um, you know, because he thought these are just perfect moral instruction from the greatest moral teacher in world history. That's that's how Jefferson viewed Jesus by uh, the mid-1800s. And, um, and, and so some stuff made it in, but for the most part, it is a moralistic, naturalistic, purely ethical version of Christianity. And that, as you would guess, is illustrative of Jefferson's brand of Christianity. Did he believe in the virgin birth? No. Okay, so he thinks Joseph fathered Jesus? Yes. Tell us a little bit more about Jefferson's view of Jesus. I've got a note here to talk about Jefferson Bible, which you just did. His, I mean, obviously an admiration you mentioned. So he believes Jesus was... A, a good teacher. How did that connect for him with um, with those of faith? I mean, did he did he just say, "Well, you know, uh, live and let live," or we're going to you know believe whatever we want to believe? Or did he actively try to convince others? How did he um, use the Bible? Also, you said um, something that stood out to me was there's uh, indication about him not showing this thing to others, was it for personal use, do you think? I mean, what was his quote-unquote devotional life in terms of how he thought about Jesus? Yeah, he evolves on, on this issue. I mean, by the time of his early adulthood, he, I think, was very skeptical. Um, he had grown up in a traditional Anglican church environment, but 
you know, through readings as a teenager. It's the same type of story as Ben Franklin, who had grown up in a Puritan family, but, you know, had become skeptical by his sort of mid-teens. I think Jefferson goes through something like that, too. And and so I, I think by early adulthood, he believes that Jesus is a good moral teacher, certainly not divine, and uh, did not r- rise from the dead, and that there were other sort of equally good moral teachers in antiquity, mm-hmm. you know, the gr- Greek and Roman philosophers and the Stoics and th- things like that. Um, so what changed, and it changed fairly late in his life, actually uh, it came to a head during his presidency in the early 1800s, uh, he got under the influence of Unitarian uh, writers and ministers, most notably a Unitarian pastor and scientist named Joseph Priestley, whose writings convinced him, and he had you know, letter writing relationship with Priestley too. Uh, Priestley convinced him that Jesus was the the best moral teacher of all world history, mm-hmm. and and you know he he thought Jesus's uh, you know system of ethics of especially of of sacrificial love for one's fellow man is is the greatest ethical system in world history. So he by that point I think takes a step back from his deep skepticism and becomes, I think it is fair to call him a Unitarian by that mm. by that point, where he believes in an entirely naturalistic version of ethical Christianity. So he will say things like, I am a Christian, in the only sense that Jesus ever intended anyone to be, which is to focus only on his ethics and setting aside claims about his divinity. Right. That's that's pretty close, close to a direct quote from one of his letters where he was explaining this. Uh, so, and this is partly why, understandably, you know, evangelicals get confused. Uh, where they say, "Well, see, he said he was a Christian, <laughs> right?" Um, and he did not say he was a deist. By the way, I mean, Franklin said he was a, a, a deist. Franklin described himself that way, but Jefferson didn't describe himself that way. Okay. Um, and so, you, you see how? I mean, you have to kind of hang in there with right. the complexity here. And so uh, he 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 draws up the Jefferson Bible, and he he says it is for his own use. I mean that that's a that's a quote from him. He said he said I made this for my own use, and he does appear to have used it in you know what we might call like quiet times. Mm-hmm. I mean it, you know that that I think he did a lot of sort of devotional reading, but reading for personal edification uh, of his Bible. Uh, of the Greek New Testament, of the Septuagint, um, because he he thought this is what an educated uh, man, a gentleman in you know his his world should be doing. He did not share, and he he had multiple offers to publish the Jefferson Bible in his lifetime, and he did not want to do it um, because he, every time he talked publicly about religion, it got him in trouble. Uh, in Notes on the State of Virginia, his only full-length published book, he uh, questioned the historicity of Noah's flood, and that kept, you know, that he did that in the 1780s, and that kept coming back to haunt him in his in his election runs. You know, people would say, you know, he's a pagan, he's an atheist, he's, you know, he doesn't believe in the Bible, and <laughs> Jefferson would just pull his hair out and. Um, he also, by the way, uh, questioned uh, the common creation of humankind w- because he thought he thought I mean, this is hard stuff to, to take. But he, he thought 
that African people are inherently inferior to whites. Um, and he didn't understand how that could be if they were created at the same time. So he proposed the idea of what you would call polygenesis, where he, he so maybe they were created at a different time by God, you know, and, and almost like as a different race of people. And that accounts, Jefferson thought, maybe for their inherent inferiority. I mean, that's, that's some pretty dark stuff. Yeah. And, but but traditional Christians just lost their minds over this, I mean, as, as they should have. <laughs> just saying he's denying Genesis. He's, you know, he's denying common creation. He's denying Noah's flood. And so he, he just got worn out with the, you know, constant scrutiny of his religious writings. And, and so he, he wanted to keep all of his comments private. And so a lot of the sort of juiciest stuff that he ever said about religion uh, was after he retired from politics and he felt a little more freed up to at least tell friends of what he thought about, you know, why he didn't believe in the Trinity. He and John Adams would talk about that pretty regularly. Wow. What are some lessons, brother, that evangelicals, American evangelicals, um, you know, can take away today from either, you know, his uh, his political life or, um, you know, the way that um, you lay out these tensions? What are some things we can learn from him? What are some some applications we can make? Well, I think one thing is that, you know, when you're assessing a figure like Jefferson and, and you know, answering this question, you know, was he a believer? Was he not a, a believer? It, it may seem obvious, but it's it, it's it's not as simple as it seems that, that we really should let historic Christianity sort of answer the question for us and not our sort of political or national uh, preferences. I mean, I would love it if all the founding fathers were were believers, um, because I want everybody to be believers, but also because I admire, uh, especially people like Washington and, and and so forth. I mean, you know, there there's some of the founding fathers that I I think r- really truly were uh, great people, and, and especially in the context of their time. But we have to just let the chips fall where they may uh, when we're thinking historically. And if you think uh, first and foremost about what does it historically mean to be a Christian? Then you say, okay, someone who denied the Trinity, denied the divinity of Christ, and it's not—I mean, it's not like these are obscure archival reference. I mean, that like it's widely known uh, that Jefferson denied these things. So you say, okay, so in a historic sense, he is not a Christian. It, it should be pretty easy to answer that question, but when, when it gets more complicated, is when somehow America has become really central to our faith. And I mean, I love America. This is where I want to live, you know, (laughs) unless the Lord, you know, makes it real clear to me to move somewhere else. I love America, love American history, love the American political tradition. But America is not a central part of my Christian faith. Right. I mean, and, and, and so I think what happens is when you get civil religion that is deeply enmeshed with historic Christianity, then you start trying to wedge people like Jefferson into a historic Christian mode because the founding fathers, in effect, become saints in civil religion. And that that this is not good, right? I mean, the, the, you're, you're mixing up things that should not be mixed up. Absolutely be proud of the great things in the American tradition, religious liberty and all the, those sorts of things, which Jefferson was a really key player in that tradition. But, but we got to keep our... Christian faith and our American national identity distinct. 
Um, and, and, and if you do that, then it becomes, I think, pretty easy to locate Jefferson uh, on the spectrum of faith or lack thereof or belief in the Bible lack thereof. And so I think if we just remember to keep historic Christianity the priority, uh, then then assessing the American past, I think, becomes uh, easier to do. A great word. The book is Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. It's available now from Yale University Press, wherever good books are sold. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Dr. Kidd, it's, it's always great talking with you. Great to talk with you. And I'll see you in the halls pretty soon. Absolutely. <laughs> if you enjoy the podcast, dear listener, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 